welcome back to Authors on the Air. My guest today is the brilliant, the lovely, and the funny, very talented Laurie R. King. Laurie, welcome. Oh, I thought you had somebody fun on this time. <laughs> well, you were lots of fun when I saw you last in, at BoucherCon in San Diego when you sat on the Liars panel that I moderated. And I think that no one expected you to have the funny, biggest lies <laughs> of anyone on the panel. You had everyone stumped. So it was so much fun. My, my life is so unbelievable that nobody really knows what's right and what's wrong. That's true. That's true. So for those of you who don't know, Laurie is a USA, I mean, a New York Times bestselling author. I don't even know how many books you have because I couldn't count that high. But I know that you have a new one out and it is called The Lantern's Dance. This is one of the Sherlockian books, which we'll talk about. But also it is the 30th anniversary. Am I right? Yay. of the beekeeper's apprentice so we are celebrating that also uh, because that's quite a milestone and that book is so popular to this day so that's book number one with the marion sherlock isn't it yep yeah Fantastic. yeah it was published 1994 do you remember 1994 pam where were you in 1994 gosh i was still <laughs> living in miami and after that, it's kind of a blur. So, <laughs> you know, living in Miami was a blur just by the nature of it. <laughs> but also, um, Laurie, you have quite an impressive resume and bio. I think you've won every award there is. Um, and you are, we received a special divination from a church. Is that true? <laughs> divination, no. Yeah, like I, did my, I did my... Um, my graduate program, my MA program, was in Old Testament theology from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And a few years later, I wrote a novel that was set partly at my seminary there in Berkeley. And I think they decided that they, you know, more people had heard of them through my novel than, than, you know, from all the church work they could do. So they thought, quick, we must give this lady an honorary doctorate. <laughs> That's so. lovely, though. That's lovely. Yes. It's lovely. I also know that as a kid, you traveled up and down the West Coast of California, hitting every library you can find. And to this day, you're still a library junkie, aren't you? I am. I am. Yes, I'm a real. As a matter of fact, most of your, a lot of your book launches are set in li at libraries for that particular audience. I, yeah, I, I won't say that I do. You know, publishers used to be amenable to doing events in libraries because I could I could argue that people would buy books in a library event and I did in the in the I, the East Coast I did a tour that I set up myself because Random House was having some I don't know problems this was years ago and and so I did these events and all of the all of the books stores that brought to these libraries sold out. So they thought, hooray, that I don't think is the case anymore. So it's difficult to set up library events through a publisher who are obviously interested in selling books. So I do library events on my own. And so when it came time to celebrating um, The Beekeeper's Apprentice, uh, 30 years of it, one of the things I really wanted to do was as many libraries as I could 
as I could manage. And so I thought at least a dozen, one a month average. And I, I put up a thing on my Facebook page with a, a, a kind of a questionnaire of that libraries could apply for. And I had like 50 or 60 libraries apply for. Wanted to know where they were, you know, what their audience was, how big their events were. Did they do a lot of Zoom events? Um, and were they going to do any supplemental things? And so I got these I got these applications. I, because I'm old school, I, I, I did dead trees and printed them out and went over the applications and thought, oh, that would be fun. And so I chose them all over the place. There's <clears throat> all over the country. Um, there's a few that are actual in-person events because I'm going to be nearby for, um, you know, can I, and I can do library things. But a lot of them are Zoom things and most of the libraries are doing fun stuff. <clears throat> so they're having beekeepers in. Um, the one that I'm doing this Saturday is uh, going to have a uh, one Sherlockian talking about Sherlock Holmes as science fiction, which sounds a very dubious topic to me. And another one as, uh, you know, the history of Holmes. And so all these, all these fun events that are circling around the beekeeper's apprentice. And I, I love libraries. And so I'm getting involved with them. The interesting thing is when I, I mentioned I lived in Miami, when I was there, the county library was not well loved. None of the libraries were. As a matter of fact, if there was a budget cut, libraries got were the first ones under the chopping block. Yep. Where I live now on, in Southwest Florida, our library system is one of the finest in the country. As a matter of fact, every year is my it's my uh, hajj. I go on the first Saturday of March to our downtown library, which sits, sits real close to the river, because I'm in Southwest Florida, on the Bay side. And um, we have Southwest Readers Fest, where all these lovely authors that I've had the pleasure of meeting throughout my career as a podcaster and going to conferences will be there. So dear friends like Heather Graham, who I've known for 100 years, and Jeff Deaver, and Lee Matthew Goldberg and Ben Coase and all these other people always go. It's so much fun. It's free. Um, they have giant tents set up so the authors can talk, give a little talk, meet the patrons, and they have a kid's tent. It is truly a wonderful family event. Mm -hmm. So I love where I live, one, because of our library and how special it is. So I'll be going to events all over my county during mm -hmm. this particular festival and also because they have a great domestic animal services program and and being a, a rescuer of, of felines that's important to me so Absolutely. You know, yeah. yeah so, so i'm sorry i'm sorry your library event is not is not among them but i am doing um you know various public libraries all over the country and i'm doing one synagogue library in nashville which will be fun and i'm doing a a library in a women's prison um, that I'll be doing uh, talk to. So, you know, I mean, yeah. there is such a spectrum of libraries in this country. It's really great fun. It's interesting to me that after COVID, authors don't tour to bookstores so much anymore and don't really have a lot of audience members, no matter who you are. And so it makes sense to me to go to a library. It feels safer. Mm -hmm. um, it, you're you're going someplace where you know you are safe. You're with other people. I think libraries turn on a lot more audience than now bookstores do. Yep. And that's 
you know, for me, that's sad. We have great bookstores here and I had great bookstores in Miami when I lived there. I like going there. I like going and listening to, I would love listening to you reading from Beekeeper's Apprentice to hear your voice when you wrote it versus what happens when I read it. Cause it's so totally different. Yeah. I, I'm always amazed how different it is when, when authors like yourself, you know, read the story and it's so different than what I hear in my own brain, which is exciting to me. Yeah. It connects me better with the character. So I want to ask you, I, let's go back to the Beekeeper's Apprentice. Um, when did you become a Sherlockian and why did you decide to choose Mary Russell's partner as well as, well, she was kind of chosen by him, I suppose, because she was so young. How did all that, how did all that come about? Pardon me? Who, who chose who? Um, right. You know, I was, yeah, I really was not a Sherlockian. I had read, uh, you know, whatever it is that you read in high school, it's probably the Speckled Band and Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, but when I sat down and, and, started playing with the idea of writing a book. Um, I was in my thirties and I, a long time since high school. So I yeah. think that I, I must've been watching some of the, um, the PBS mystery theater with Jeremy Brett, they must've been on. And so that, that idea of that kind of detective was in my mind in a way that it wouldn't have been, you know, a few years before. And it occurred to me that that that, that kind of mind is not a distinctly masculine thing. That ability Correct. to see and to put things together is something that basically every mother of small children does. <laughs> Absolutely. You <laughs> we have, have Dr. Watson in the background saying, how do you do it? <laughs> right. You know, we just have right. kids saying, oh, mom. <laughs> so, right. So it, it occurred to me that having having that kind of mind as a sort of motor that can, that can be found in all kinds of different um, settings would work as well for a young 20th century female as it would for a Victorian male. So that's where that's where Mary Russell came from is the idea that here is this extraordinary mind in a young 20th century woman. And because it's always more interesting to put similar things next to each other as a play of contrast, um, I, I thought, well, why not? She could as easily meet him in 1915 as she could show up in the San Francisco Police Department in the, the 1980s when I was writing these things. So that's where she came from, the idea that they these are two very, very similar and yet very different people. And what would they look like if they encountered each other? So, How did you decide that you were going to write novels, fiction novels, crime fiction? You know, I think that if you had, I think if you told me a few years earlier that I was going to write novels when I grew up, I probably would have assumed that you meant science fiction because that's that's what I read more of. Interesting. Um, I, I started reading mysteries, I guess, probably in my 30s. And I started writing them when I was 35, I think. Um, but... I I found that when I started 
when I sat down to actually write a book, there aren't enough rules in science fiction for me to be comfortable with as a writer. I, I needed more structure. And the traditional mystery of, you know, a, a death and suspects and an investigation and a solution is one that you can hang all kinds of uh, different stories on. The skeleton that you can build any number of bodies on. And, and I found that I was comfortable there in, and it allowed me as much freedom as I wanted when it came to telling a story. So that's, that's where I began as a mystery writer. Had you known you were going to write when you were younger? Did you have a craving no. to write? No, I, I, I often wonder if I had ever met a writer, if I'd never known a writer when I was a kid, I'm, you know, I, I don't even remember even having a writer come to school and talk to us. I yes. many kids do now, but I had never met a writer. And I think that I, I think that I sort of believed that all those books on the shelves had been put there by God. Yes. <laughs> just, yes. Yes. I mean, there's photographs of people on there, but they don't look like anyone I know. Exactly. And so I it wasn't until I hit my 30s that I thought, well, and it was one of those periods where the kids were really young. And my husband was employed full-time, but he was an academic, so we often traveled in the summer. And it's tough to get a job that isn't in academia. Yes. That that enables you to travel in the summer. Right, so, to do the family thing in the summer, right. So while the kids were small, I thought, well, one thing I can do is put together a sentence. And maybe if I can put together enough sentences and uh, and make a, a story, um, I would be able to, you know, make a sort of make a sort of career. And I thought, well, I, I had, you know, three or four years until the kids were old enough for me to actually be away from them all day, right. all week, right. and have to get a real job. <laughs> and very fortunately, I sold my first book before I had to go out and get a real job. So um, you sold your first manuscript right off the bat? No, it, it was, uh, I wrote it in 87 and we sold it in the end of 1991 or two. Anyway, it came out in 1993. So was your, was your first book picked up by the first person you queried, the, the first public. No, I said, I did the whole thing of, you know, sending out cold manuscripts, <clears throat> mailing them. Ah. And of course, it was the mailing days before email, obviously. Um, sure, sure. And so I would send them out, and they'd come back to me, you know, with coffee stains and cigarette ash in them, and you know, no thank you, and missing pages. And so I then send them out to the next one. And after after a few months of this, I realized that there was no way I could do that and write more books. And, and I needed to continue writing if I was going to have anything to sell. Because right. right. like, you know, having small kids means that you don't have a lot of free time. So I looked around for an agent and found one in San Francisco. <clears throat> um, and, um, and so she started taking care of all that submission stuff. And we, uh, the, the first book we sold was the actually the third book that I had written um, a grave talent. So I wrote two in the Mary Russell series. Mm -hmm. And then 
<clears throat> since I was sending them out on my own and nobody was interested, I thought, well, maybe I could write something slightly different and, you know, move it up to my time and my part of the world. And so that's where Kate Martinelli, who's a San Francisco okay. police department right. homicide inspector, that's where she came from, is the thought that I could write a different thing. And, and as luck would have it, she was the first one sold, so... That's fantastic. What an interesting story. So uh, you mentioned your children. I'm assuming they're all grown up now and out of the house and living their own lives. How many of your kids are creative like you? Well, my daughter is in, uh, she's one of those interesting mixed careers. She's partly uh, a freelance editor. She also is now the um, the main editor for a new imprint, a new press that's just starting up. Not not press, but they are a new publishing house that's starting up called Fine. Fringe. Um, and, and she also does a lot of um, developmental stuff with other writers. So oh, she works in the book business, just not um, producing manuscripts of her own. She has written a short story, but she doesn't do her own. So do you believe that's your influence, that she saw what you were doing to get published and she took an interest in that? I, well, certainly she saw the business side of it in a way that most kids would not have. You know, I mean, for somebody who grew up with a mom who makes her living off of writing books, you, you see, and she would go to she'd go to conferences with me and she met editors. And so, you know, she'd done all kinds of stuff seeing how the book business, business works. And so she had that kind of background that, um, that you, I mean, how do you get that if you don't have somebody in your family that you see? Right. Um, right. So what about your other children? Uh, my son uh, is, he is not, book oriented but he is has been involved in video games um oh fabulous degree in in game programming and has he he's he's not been involved in a successful game yet but he's he's a very clever young man but you know it's always the next one you never know just like you never know if your book's going to get published yeah you, you know if you're creative you want to take a chance on that congratulations on having successful kids that's great creative kids that's a lot of fun um let's talk about the lanterns dance yep. because we're going to go back to beekeepers um apprentice in just a minute but i want to talk about the book that releases this february the lanterns hey. dance um Nice book. It took me not too long to read it because it was so fascinating. I got into this book really fast. And so I, I, I really did. I, I have not typically read a lot of Sherlock Holmes. I probably did when I was young. You know, you and I are the same generation. So I don't know what I was reading back then. I read a little bit of it. Mostly, <laughs> was Sherlock in comics by any chance? Oh, probably at various points over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember how I, how I read him, but, but, you know, I was also as a young person into, you know, Hardy Boys and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it just seemed to follow suit to the great Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I love this. So let's talk about the premise and where we are with Sherlock and Mary, because this is book number in their series. 18. 
18, yeah. And and there's a collection that there is a, a 19th volume that's a collection of short stories, but it's short stories. So yeah. Um yeah, it was it's you know, it's always interesting having a series that goes on for a while because you often wonder, well, if I were a reader and I pick up a book that I know is number 18, am I am I gonna even bother opening it? Because I just figure that there's all kinds of stuff I don't know. And I think that some books that I have written in the series work better as a first introduction than others. Interesting. Um, but I think this one, because there's so much in it that that doesn't have to do with where they have been before. Um, you know, there's new stuff in there. There's stuff that's new even to um, Sherlock Holmes himself, which I, I was always fun to write. It's a, it's always fun to write stuff that Holmes doesn't know. I love that. <laughs> I love. Well, I, I'm very fond of the premise of of Mary being, you know, her own person and having her own ideas and her own insights and her own gut feelings and you know, kind of knowing. She's, um, she really, or shall I say. Sherlock is her equal. How about that? That's that's the way I choose to look at it. They're well it's matched. A fun, pardon me? They are well matched, yes. They are well matched. And so it's a fun book. I really enjoyed it. Um, so you mentioned something about book number 18 and wondering, you know, if you're going to be interested in what you have to say. I want to tell you that I read a lot of uh, paranormal and fantasy and midlife women's fiction, you know, paranormal and everything. I'm on book number 44 of a series. And even though it's, I already know how it's going to turn out. I know exactly what's going to happen as far as the template of the story is concerned. The inside of that story is so much fun and so different from all the ones before it. So I never lose my interest. And I'm not generally a big series person. Mm -hmm. I, I like three books and then, you know, I'll move on to something else only because no one writes like this. No one writes as well as you do. The <laughs> stories are unique. Mm -hmm. Each and every one is unique and that's something else. So congratulations on that. So I wanna get away a little bit from talking about this book and go back to Beekeeper's Apprentice. This is the 30th anniversary. You're going to be going around. This was the very first book you wrote, is it? Yeah, it's the first book that I that I finished writing. I had the first before I started this, you know, when the, when my when my kids were really small, mm -hmm. I played with the idea of a sort of futuristic novel, and got halfway through it and, and had no idea where it was going or how to end right. it. And I had no time, so I just put it aside. I did eventually finish it, and it was published. But this is the first book that I wrote as, you know, beginning to end, um, <clears throat> and. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, when I first wrote it, it was, it was extremely episodic. I mean, it was mm -hmm. just this little, because it's the story of this young woman who meets Sherlock Holmes and becomes obviously his apprentice and they grow as a team so that there's different cases as they go along. And so it's going to be episodic. You can't get away from that because it's different different investigations that sure. increase in in how how hard they are but i when i realized that i then went back and <clears throat> and that's when i learned how you can shape a book 
once it exists. Because I'm a really big believer in the rewrite process. Because I don't do um, outlines, I don't. I never know where a book is going when I start. Um, I, I write the book and then look at how it works and how it doesn't work. And so when I had the first draft of, of The Beekeeper's Apprentice, even that being my first book and my first experience with shaping a novel, I knew that it wasn't actually a novel. It was just a series of glued together stories. And I needed word, it to Word have, vomit on the page, right? <laughs> you know, but once it's on the page, you can look at it and you can say, you can okay, this is, this is good. This is strong. This is not so good. This is what it needs. And it needed an arc to tie it together. And without giving spoilers in the book, because sure. there will be some people who haven't read it, um, you know, there is a case that sort of ties together from an early case on into um, the, the ending. And then it started working as a novel. So um, that it so taught having, me an enormous amount. I'm sorry. Having said that, you, you, I don't write. Listen, I, I admit I can barely get an email off without going through spell check and grammar check. So, you know, <laughs> I am the first one to say that. I I admire anyone who can write. It is something I truly wish I could do. I can't. Um, are there, is it difficult to weave other stories in with your main story? especially when you write on the fly like you do on in, in an organic way because not every book has just one or at least not that i've read has one mate stop talking that's my cat yelling at me <laughs> uh one you have the main story but there are other little ancillary stories going on how does that work how how hard is that to weave those stories together they may not have one may not have anything to do with the other but you still have to put it there, don't you? Well, I think that in in a novel, yeah, you have you have your main plot, but because it's a novel and not a short story, you have you have a lot of material that you can play with, and you have a lot of character development that you want to do. If you have a short story. You have a beginning and you just have tick, 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 and then you end right. it. And even a long short story, even that's my short stories tend to be really long. It's one plot line, which is why short stories are so effective when you want to make a movie. Yes. Sometimes right. it's really difficult to make a movie out of a novel because there's so much going on in the novel that you've got right. to whittle away. That makes sense to me. They're all tied together. All those right. plots, subplots, right, right. character, and all the rest of it. Whereas with a short story, is right there. Um, but the the way that the subplots work together, sometimes for me when I'm writing, sometimes it's obvious how to develop things. And so you, you know, you have <clears throat> Russell at one point goes off to university and she meets a person there and the two of them have various things that happen later on you come back and you you know i i make use of that character again in other books but without that kind of subplot going on you you miss a whole side of russell's personality because That's otherwise she's only she's only face to face with holmes or holmes. mrs hudson right or she's talking to herself because she's, you know, she's the narrator for the books. 
And it isn't um, until you see her through other people's eyes that you begin to get a, a picture of her full personality and how she she can have fun. She understands what fun is. Sure, sure. So through the now 18th book for Mary and Holmes, you've added more layers to her personality and given her more characteristics. So she's a more fully formed person than she was in book number five, yeah. obviously. Yeah. She's had more experiences. She's um, developed in a, in a different way. At least that's how I see it. Yeah. I'm sure that's intentional on your part because you can't have a static character who's the same in every single book. You, you know, some people do. There are some series that, um, you know, <laughs> Jack Reacher... I was just thinking the same thing. But that's what Lee is doing with his books. Lee Child's books are, you know, they are, they are interchangeable. And this is a character who is timeless in the sense that he is outside the world and his character development is not where those books are. No, it's all about the action in it. Yes. I I get you. These particular books, the Russell series, I, I don't want her to be the same person at the end of the book as she was at the beginning. Each book has character development in it. That's what I am aiming for with these stories. And that's it. And it was interesting because I had half a dozen um, of the the books and it, they were all, Russell was the main character and Sherlock Holmes is a supporting actor. And it wasn't until the book that that introduces Russell as a an unreliable narrator. She goes to her past uh, home in San Francisco and discovers that what she thought she knew about her childhood was wrong. So that because she is unreliable, you have to have somebody who whose eyes can see. And so I started using Holmes there as the person who actually sees what's going on. Right. Whereas Russell can't because she's too emotionally involved. And with that book, I started exploring, I started exploring Sherlock Holmes as an actual character and, and to, to look at him, because if you think about it, you know, here's, here's this middle-aged man who meets this extraordinary and utterly unexpected young woman who changes his life. And yet you're not allowed to see any of that change in the books. So after that, I started allowing him to develop as a character too. And I think that the homes that you see now in the books is very different from the homes that you could see in the early books because all all of the homes in the early books was just what Mary Russell was seeing. But I, I love why you're so successful though, Laurie, truthfully, well, because you're intri- the character's different every time you read another story. And while he has his core, there are the little ticks and personality traits and, and, you know, realizations and it's it, honestly growth is good. So um, I, I find that I wanted to look at his past and that's yes. where that's where the lantern stance comes in because you don't really know anything about Sherlock Holmes. I mean, you Arthur don't. Conan Doyle right. doesn't tell us anything about him. Anything, right? And and so I wanted to open some interesting doors into this character's life, both his son, Damian Adler, and you know the, the 
the mysterious Rene family of artists that that he comes from. And so that's that's where I was aiming for with the lantern stance. It's a fabulous book, I have to Thank tell you. you. Thank we you. are almost out of time. As a matter of fact, I've taken a lot of your time, but it's been so much fun. I didn't want to want to stop. Do you mind if we play um, Stump the Author? <laughs> or how about five quick questions and five quick answers? Uh, you, you can you can okay. easily stump me, I'm sure. Okay, well, I'm not going to. Uh, we'll, we'll do something different. So what's your absolutely favorite food? Oh, I, you know, there's nothing quite like a fresh pear. Works for me. It uh, works for me. I, I'm with fresh mango or something else, but I get you. Mango. Um, if if you if you um, weren't writing, what do you think you'd be doing? I would probably teach. I well, I you know, I'm old enough now. I'd probably be retired from teaching. But right. I think I think that I probably expected before I became a writer. I, that's where I was going. So, is there another profession? that fascinates you that you wouldn't mind trying? What I would have loved to do was architecture. If I was better in math, I, I would have loved to be an architect. How wonderful. Whose book is on your nightstand? Oh, whose book? Oh, I just got the new collection of lost Terry Pratchett stories. Oh, fabulous. Well, it's uh, got that an, int an introduction by Neil Gaiman called, I think it's called A Stroke of the Pen. Yes, cover. Yeah, it is. And, you know, Neil Gaiman, he's an interesting guy. Yes. So I you were t you reminded me when you said you went to a temple library um, in Miami. Books and Books is our is a very, very famous bookstore. They are the ones who sponsor the Miami Book Fair. You know, they got it started and everything. But when Neil Gaiman came down to sign, they moved it to the synagogue down the street and. The line, it was overflowing down the street. They, they couldn't even accommodate everyone. Yeah. And I happened to go early and I was sitting right in the front row where, where he was. So my book was the first book to get signed by him. There you and go. Fact, I had three books and I actually auctioned off two of them. So I have my very, you know, yeah. mine. And then I gave two away to friends. Yeah. To me, those those are invaluable experiences for me. Well, it's events like that that explain why he doesn't do signings anymore because he'll be there yeah. until three in the morning soaking his hand in ice. Signing yes, it's really true. It's really true. But he took an hour for lunch before he started signing. So and he has his whole family with him, which is really cool. And, you know, Heather Graham's like that. She takes her whole family everywhere. And I, and I love that when I see them. Um, OK, let's think of something else. Um what is your best piece of writing advice for someone who says, I want to write a book, but I don't know how to start? I, you know, you just got to start throwing words on a page. And like I said, you change the words. Um, some of them work, some of them don't. They tell you where they, they want to go next. I'm a big believer in the fact and the idea that the back of the brain knows the story you want to tell. And those of us who don't outline there's there's a there's a some kind of ruling order principle but in the back of my head that knows when where the book is going and you know when I'm working in the right direction so does it ever surprise you does Always. Do your character surprise you and say no no we're not doing that we're going to go to someplace else yeah I, I kind of depend on that um I depend on that surprise I depend on um 
you know, on characters that come to life in unexpected ways. So. Is there anyone you want to say hello to or give a shout out to? All the friends of Marion and Sherlock out there. I mean, there you go. They, there they you have go. they have many friends. Where's the best place for us to find you on the interwebs and your tour schedule and your Zoom schedule? Funnily enough, I have an events page. If Fantastic. You, and you would that your, be at lauriarking.com? That is right. lauriarking.com events. And there's a special, a special page for the four Beekeepers Apprentice all-day celebrations that we're putting on this year. But they are also, there's all the events virtual and live events so fun I'm fun fun covering thank you the so much laurie r king you have been just a joy to talk to today thank you so much and i want to thank everyone for listening today we'll see you again soon thank you pam